What I uh, would like to do over these next however long it t- takes is to go through this uh, Sermon of the Buddhas, which most of you know uh, includes 16 independent but interrelated ways of contemplating breathing. And in one way of looking at it, it's a kind of gradual and systematic unfolding of the way the practice goes from calming and concentrating the mind to wisdom and liberation. Uh, There's a lot of room for individual preferences where some of you may be drawn to a particular contemplation uh, and do a lot more work with it, or sometimes we need a certain contemplation because of the way our practice is. So what I'd like to do is uh, comment, we've started already, comment on these 16 contemplations and um, the tapes will be in the library and also uh, if any of you uh, would like to volunteer to type up some of the these talks as we unfold what we can do is um, have a copy kept in the library so if people miss one of the talks then um, you can read it but in any case there'll be a tape in the library uh, which I don't think uh, you can take out though so those who would like to see it, uh, listen to it can. Uh, and what I'd like to do is uh, comment on the on these 16 contemplations and some of the comments will be very much having to do with method, very practical, pragmatic. Uh, the emphasis is really on, it's for people who want to meditate. It's not uh, a scholarly exposition, or some of it uh, inescapably will be and will be of perhaps of some interest to a few of you, maybe not to some of you. Um, let me found this old note from about, oh, four or five years ago. So that's one of the reasons I asked if any of you have had even a second of happiness while following the breath. Uh, I brought one of the teachers I was working with, a, an old Cambodian monk. Uh, he came here one night and questioned my, he knew what I was doing and knew what we were teaching here. And I, after speaking to people and seeing that full awareness of breathing was the central practice here, other, other techniques of course are taught, but this dominates. He said, uh, you should change the name of this center. Insight, Cambridge Insight Meditation Center is too dull. And it doesn't really say what's going on. By the way, can we have the mindfulness bell whenever you feel like it? Oh, could someone start passing the bell forward? We'll keep, uh, for those of you who are new, uh, when the bell rings, it's called a mindfulness bell. We just stop what we're doing and uh, come to our breathing to help collect ourselves, perhaps improve our listening. Okay, so he, got, he came up with an, an, another name, which was Wat Anapanasati Kamatanaram. I don't, I don't know how well that would go over on Broadway if we had a sign. But what it means in English is the place where people become happy watching the breath. <laughs> sure, say it again. Wat Anapanasati Kamatanaram. The place where people become happy watching the breath.
I would suggest that you <clears throat> try to stay in touch with your breathing as you listen. And if we have time tonight, we'll go into uh, the application of the full awareness of breathing in daily life, uh, where breath helps you do other things, where breath in the sense is in the background helping you to, to see more clearly, to hear more clearly, and so forth. So see if you can uh, begin right now, if you've just walked in. Stay in touch with your breathing and allow it to help you stay focused. See if it helps you to listen. When the mind wanders off, uh, come back. So, of course, the primary thing is to listen and see if the breath can help you do that. Okay. Uh, we left off last week. I'm just going to read a little bit of where we were. What is the way to develop and practice continuously the method of full awareness of breathing so that the practice will be rewarding and offer great benefit? This is asked of the Buddha, and the Buddha answers. It is like this, bhikkhus, which means monks, but it includes us, meditators. The yogi goes into the forest, or to the foot of a tree, or to an empty dwelling, and sits stably with crossed legs, holding his body quite straight, and arouses mindfulness. Breathing in, he or she knows that he or she is breathing in. Breathing out, he knows that he is breathing out. It doesn't say she. We all know that it's he and she. It's a little cumbersome to just keep repeating that over and over. We have to get a new way of putting it. One. One breathes in, one breathes out. Yeah. Maybe. Or they. Yeah. yeah, it's okay. Uh, that's where we left off. <clears throat> and we began to, uh, we got into the first two a little bit. And I'm just going to read them because I'm going to treat them as one. The first contemplation, the first of these 16, is breathing in a long breath. The yogi knows I'm breathing in a long breath. Breathing out a long breath. The yogi knows I'm breathing out a long breath. The second contemplation, breathing in a short breath, the yogi knows I'm breathing in a short breath. Breathing out a short breath, the yogi knows I'm breathing out a short breath. Okay, before we uh, get to long and short, there's in and out, if you recall. And this is the basis for it all, the entire structure of this uh, sermon, and this, this is one of the two main meditation sermons the Buddha gave in the, in the Theravadan tradition. Um, In-out is the basis for all of it, and we're, we're going to see that that can be used in quite a few ways. Um, by knowing here, it doesn't really mean thinking. It's not that we think about, and yet, uh, as those of you who have started to practice or uh, I've been practicing for a while, know that sometimes the breath is an elusive object to attend to, very, very difficult. Uh, we can't even find our nostrils sometimes, let alone the breath. And so there have been some help has been offered throughout the centuries. In the sutra, that's all that it says, but for thousands of years, people have been working with this approach and have come up with ways of helping us in a provisional way, in a preliminary way, until we uh, the mind becomes very, very calm and settled, and then we let go of these verbal formulations and even 
images. So that, for example, uh, if you begin to just, to just know, if you're breathing in and you're breathing out, just to know that can be a huge step. Just to, I'm breathing in and I know it, I'm breathing out and I know it. Okay. And because it's difficult, uh, there have been a number of uh, kind of adjunct techniques offered to help out, and I just would like to go through a few tonight. Um, one which many of you know is counting. That is, uh, in addition to being with the in-breath and the out-breath, it's been found, and some of you know that, that if you count, and there are many ways of doing this, I'm only going to mention a few, if you count, if you t uh, uh, give each breath a little number, you give the thinking mind something to nibble on, or if the, if the thinking mind is really wild, as it can be, and you give it something to count with, then perhaps it'll be some kind of consolation. It'll be content a little bit. And using the counting, it will be able to gradually become more and more concentrated on the breathing. Now, when you start to look at your breathing, to examine your breathing, just the simple in-breath and out-breath, if you look carefully, you may find that you have certain patterns of observation. They vary from person to person, and they even vary uh, from sitting to sitting for ourselves. For example, uh, a number of us have found, you may find that uh, the out-breath is much easier to attend to than the in-breath, just because of the way it is. And you'll find that uh, be because of that, we tend to space out on the breath that's not quite as congenial to attend to. Maybe it's slightly more constrained. Maybe it's just a little bit more uh, coarse. Whatever the reason, it may be for emotional reasons. So we find there's a difference, though, between the in-breath and the out-breath. And if you begin to notice that, then you can begin to correct it. You begin to see, oh, look at that. I tend to, uh, to space out much more on the out-breath than on the in-breath. Once you notice that, then by just giving a little bit more attention, you can even out the in-breath and the out-breath so that your attention becomes more uniform. And there's, of course, your concentration will improve. It can get even more refined than that. Some people will uh, space out at the, let's say you're breathing in, and you're very aware of the inception of the in-breath and the, the body of it, but you never, it never ends. You space out before it ends, or, the, or with the out-breath. And so, uh, just by practicing, you may begin to notice certain idiosyncrasies having to do with the way you relate to your own breathing in a given uh, practice period. Uh, this can lead into the counting in the following way. This is a technique used in Burma. Let's say you follow your breathing and you see that uh, the in-breath is more appealing or it's flowing more freely. You're more attracted to it. Uh, you're less likely to space out with it. So then if you start your counting, what they would suggest is that you start counting with the easier breath. So that let's say it is the, let's say it's the out-breath. The out-breath just is, for one reason or another, is easier for you. It holds your attention. You've noticed that. So then on the out-breath, one, then you breathe in, no count. On the out-breath, two. On the out-breath, three. 
on the outbreath four, and so forth until ten. Now, as probably most of you know, if you're interrupted, as the mind wanders, let's say at four, you go back to one. It has a, a bit of a game-like quality. Don't make it into a torture chamber. You know, it's more playful. Okay, so you start, you start the counting, and you go from one to ten, and if it's the out-breath, then use the out-breath because it's already easier for you. In a sense, we're rigging it in our own favor for a change. Okay. And then, let's say <clears throat> you're able to do roughly, there's no absolute about this, roughly ten sets of ten, uninterruptedly, you count from one to ten on the out-breath, and you're able to do that ten times. Then uh, you might want to switch now to the in-breath, which is a little harder for you to attend to and do your counting from one to ten on the in-breath. Of course, you can do it on both, and sometimes there's no difference, so it doesn't matter. Just which, however you wish to do it, it's fine. So that's one kind of, uh, of, uh, of technique. Another way to help yourself, if you find that as you try to count with the breath, and there is a suggested way to do that, as you try to do that, you find you never get beyond five. That is, and you start feeling discouraged. Well, then just make five the end point. Set it up so that you don't have that kind of a problem. We have enough to work with. So then you work, you go from one to five, and then soon your concentration improves. You find you're able to go to, that's, you get to seven. Then make seven the outer limit until finally ten. Now the attitude towards counting and breathing is something like this: counting is used because it's very, very primitive. We all, one of the first things a child learns is how to count. And so it's very, very deeply ingrained. People who come from another culture, I remember my parents told me that they counted in, in Russian for a long time. And then finally they noticed suddenly one day they were counting in English and it represented something. This is more my mother. So because that's so ingrained, we don't have to think about it much. And that's, of course, an advantage. Uh, the approach would be, Let's say, as the breathing, as let's say, if you're working with the in-breath, the, the number one, the in-breath, and the mindfulness all come together. That is, they become one. You fully hear the count, one, as the, as the in-breath happens, and you silent. Of course, this is, those of you who are really new, this is not said aloud. This is an inner speech. So that <clears throat> the, the one and the in-breath and the mindfulness come together. Uh, and as we move on, let's say we get to two and three, it's not uh, that we're thinking that, well, three is uh, after two but before four. You don't, with with uh, counting, it's so basic, so deep in us that you don't have to do that. So that three is just three. Four is just four. Keep it very, very simple. You'll see that it's possible to do that with counting. And bring it all together so that the number, the breath, and the mindfulness uh, unite. They become one, one event. And as that happens, of course, you'll feel a difference in your concentration. Now, there's no magic to going from one to ten. It's used, it's been used traditionally for a long time. I would say, when you feel you've settled down and you feel a bit more calm, uh, then uh, it would be useful to drop it, to not use the counting. Other things that are used to help. Um, something called a parikama. Some, some people call it a, a mantra. It's not exactly a mantra, but it's not important. In Thailand, they use this a lot. They use the term budo, which means the awakened one. In other words, it's a, a term for the Buddha. It's us when we're mindful. 
in a moment when we're awake, we are Buddha, the one who knows. And so on the in-breath it could be Bu, and on the out-breath it would be Buddha, Buddha, Buddha. Um, many Americans are not drawn to this, or Westerners are not drawn to this, because it's a, an alien language. You know, it's in the Pali language. Some people are, and it's extremely helpful. Uh, there's no need to imitate anyone. It's really what works for you is what counts. And that's why I'm giving you a few choices. So there's counting. You can use Budo. Of course, I left out the simplest of all, just plain old-fashioned, just plain old in-out. On the in-breath, in. On the out-breath, out. And the in and the out would be very little energy in it. It would be like a whisper, an inner whisper that you're listening to. If I had a, just to convey what I'm trying to say, let's say about 10% of your energy is on the count, is on the in and on the out. The rest of it is experiencing the breathing. Uh, and another approach, a more recent one, uh, that some of you know that Thich Nhat Hanh has introduced. He also uses words like in-out or deep-slow. Uh, you can make up your own, of course. But more recently he's used images taken from Zen poetry because what he found was that some people do better with, with images than with words. So the whole point is for us to be skillful, not to, not to be locked in, into tradition in a rigid way. Personally, I consider myself a very conservative person in terms of the Dharma. Probably as the teachers in the West go, I'm, I, think if, I think it's probably pretty clear I am. But what that means to me is that what conservative means is an attempt to conserve what's of value, something that's really valuable, which is this. But if you become literal, you don't conserve it, you kill it. In other words, if you don't love, for example, each generation can enrich the tradition. So we have to find things that work for us. We're, we're doing it. If we just stick with the way it's done in Burma, or the way it's done in Thailand, and anything, not feel that we're even entitled to devise anything that helps us, that would be not conserving the tradition. That would be killing it. So we have, uh, it's a good thing for us to enrich the, the tradition. I think we have to be careful as to how we do it so that we don't dilute teachings and so forth. At any rate, what Thich Nhat Hanh has introduced, which some people benefit from, uh, I'll just give you a taste of a few of them. It's, it can be, it's more developed than this. Uh, one would be uh, on the in-breath, to see yourself as a flower, and on the out-breath, to see your, uh, experience yourself as, f as fresh. In other words, it's flower, fresh. Flower, fresh. So that, in a sense, what you're doing is uh, it's somewhat of a visualization where you're partaking, assuming you have a very nice association with flowers. If you don't, I wouldn't use it. So that there's something beautiful about a flower for you, and you are that flower in that moment. But it's coordinated with the breathing, just as counting is. So, and then it becomes abbreviated. It becomes flower, fresh. Flower, fresh. Flower, fresh. Or to help you with your posture. And I've been using this with some people here. Uh, I tested it first, and I find it, it's useful. With posture, there's another one, uh, to see yourself as a mountain, on the in-breath mountain, on the out-breath solid, or as a solid as a mountain, to get, get a, even if it's visual, and feel it as if you're sitting like a mountain. And uh, what I've su suggested to some people is the very beginning of a sitting, you might, when you're kind of arranging your posture and trying to come to a balanced and solid position, just on the in-breath, just mountain, just really feel as if you are that mountain. You're solid, and then on the out-breath, solid. Mountain, solid, mountain, solid. 
Now, you won't find any of these in the original teachings of the Buddha, which is not to say we shouldn't use them. Uh, and I'm sure there, there really are many more. I'm not going into all of them tonight. But I did want to uh, put on record for those who listen to this and some of you, uh, so that you understand that it's, the practice is very much of an individual matter. And as we make our way through the 16 contemplations, you really will begin to see that each one of us has to thread our way through it in a very different way. We're all individuals. The practice is not some kind of standardized cookie punch where we all come out sounding and looking the same, even though there's an overall frame of reference. And if the Dharma is worth anything, it's a univer- these are universal principles. That means they're outside of time and space. They have nothing to do necessarily with being Asian or American or anything of that sort. And we also know there's a huge amount of cultural stuff, and including our own, which has to be honored which we're slowly, I hope, and carefully doing. Okay, um, another uh, little help that I... Uh, these are a few technical things. In Swan Mok Monastery in Thailand with uh, uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was one of my teachers and who, uh, in one very hot three-hour exchange, I was soaking wet, we went back and forth in a dialogue that lasted three hours. He finally, very, very dramatically and conclusively for me, got across how it is that Anapanasati, this sutra, is not just about a serenity or calmness, which it has been used uh, as a lot, that it is a full path, that it begins with calmness and serenity, but it ends <clears throat> in vipassana and insight and, and liberation. Uh, and anyway, his monastery... Well, I, don't, I, I couldn't do it justice, but there was one point where we were eye to eye and he just said, I've, I've even forgotten my question, but the point he, what he's trying to say was, can you see that the breath is empty? Now, those of you who are new, you're not going to know what I'm talking about, but there are limits to how remedial we can get. You know? He said, the breath is empty, whatever comes up in the mind is empty, and even the mindfulness is empty. It's so that everything is empty. And uh, what happens is, there is breathing. Well, I, I remember now, what, what I reported is that there is breathing, but you can't find the breather. There's no one to be found. There's definitely breathing going on. But when you start to look for a breather, there's no breather around. Well, you said, yes, there is. It's me. But that's a thought or a notion. And as you go more deeply, you realize there's nobody home. And yet, you know, and the more you, re- the more, you know, there's a little cute thing we use. The lights are out. Uh, there's nobody home, but the lights are on. Uh, the nobody home, of course, means you're even more fully alive. Uh, to be home is just a, an idea. These are thoughts and notions that the self, has, uh, that we've conjured up about our existence. At any rate, at his monastery, uh, he's a very open person, very traditional. In fact, his name means, Buddhadasa means servant of the Buddha, and he certainly lived his 85, he's still alive, going strong. 85 years as very much a servant of the Buddha. But he introduced uh, what is uh, washing of the nostrils, like before you're going to meditate or in the morning. Those of you who are Hatha yogis know about this. It's a water neti or string neti as well, where you take, let's say, a quarter teaspoon of um, sea salt and put it in lukewarm water and snuff it through one nostril a few times and then snuff it through another, and of course it comes out of your mouth. There are health benefits to this in terms of... Um, stimulating the, op- the optic nerve in terms of 
minimizing the catching of colds by keeping the nasal passages clean. But for our purposes here, uh, as you do it, you become much more sensitive to the breathing. And so it's easier to attend to the breathing. Not this evening, but perhaps on other evenings, I'll suggest a few very simple breathing exercises. Again, you won't find them in the original teachings of the Buddha. But in the modern world, uh, it's not only my own experience, but I've compared notes with so many people who have practiced and taught and and are teaching. Uh, Many people have defective breathing for emotional reasons, for physical problems, uh, illness, whatever. And so when we're asked to become aware of the breathing, we're actually being asked to become aware of an unpleasant event. What we experience is a lot of control, tightness, restriction, and uh, the joy of breathing that is there for all of us eventually is not apparent. And when you have a meditation object that's not pleasant, this is especially so for new people, uh, the mind doesn't like to be unhappy. And so if it looks at the breath and it sees that uh, it doesn't like the way the breath is, it just spaces out and creates a nice fantasy. Much more, much more joy, um, uh, enjoyable. So that sometimes what's helpful, and I would say in general, those of you who are attracted to this method, you may not have that problem. It's not that everyone does, but enough people do. Uh, hatha yoga, tai chi, uh, various forms of breath therapy, you know, whatever. Anything that helps the breath flow more freely, I think you will find, will make uh, breath awareness, of course, it's just common sense. It will make it more accessible. Now, it's not absolutely essential because although uh, the improvement of the, the, the quality of our breathing does improve from just being aware of breathing, not trying to improve it, just the awareness of breathing over a period of time will dramatically change your breath. And so it's a health benefit that comes out of this practice. Um, but strictly speaking, the breath is, a, is a, an awareness object, an object for attention. And so if you don't want to do any of this, you, know, you really don't want to do yoga, don't want to wash your nostrils out with salt water, or you can even run a string through it or rub a catheter, it's very, very useful. But you don't want to get into that. I, it's all right. There was a fellow who came here uh, a number of years ago who had a very serious case of emphysema. And we're moving in next to the uh, long breath and the short breath. For him, a long breath was that he felt the breath maybe a little bit beyond the collarbone, and a short breath would be more up in the throat and neck. And he did beautifully. The reason he did beautifully is that he was dying, and he was highly motivated. I hope we don't have to wait that long. So that even though the breath was, it was fighting its way in and out, his breath was not a pleasant object, based on what he told me. But he was so motivated that he got into very, very... uh, wonderful developments in terms of not only concentration, but of letting go. And uh, it was quite inspiring to see how important the intention is to practice, or the motivation to practice, the devotion to a particular practice. Now, those of you who are new, you're probably, you know, trying every, you know, Cambridge is like, if you look at bulletin boards, that's what our minds are like. You know, if you t- look at a typical Cambridge bullet board, New Age bulletin board, mm-hmm. it's got so many things, and that's what I'm, I think I'll do, try this Vipassana stuff one night, someone called it that once. <laughs> and Zen on Thursday, and maybe some Sufi, you know, fine. There's definitely uh, 
a need for that until you shopping as you know it's it's part of the American way of life. But if you find a mode of meditation that does appeal to you, I would plead with you, please stop running around like that and just become devoted to that one method. Not necessarily here, but wherever. Because otherwise you can waste years. It's really just a very high class distraction, restlessness. But it all has like spiritual justification. Going to this place, that teacher, this center, it all sounds wonderful. In the meantime, it's guaranteed that you don't settle down. So you have to know what you're up to. Are you doing that or you genuinely haven't found the method that's right for you? And that's legitimate. And then, of course, continue your search. But uh, if you feel, that, let's say, the breath in some form, and in Buddhist meditation, it is very often the meditation in, in all the traditions, all three traditions. Uh, and if you can develop some real interest in it, some devotion, and of course, mainly that comes from the doing of it and fruit the fruit that comes out of it, and then you develop a love of the method, uh, that can correct for all kinds of things. Okay. Um, this breathing in and out, a long and short breath, we touched upon that a little bit last week. Uh, what is that all about? Okay, those are the first two contemplations. Uh, a long breath, for most of us, might mean when we feel the breath all the way down in the, in the abdomen, or, quite frankly, when you become very, very concentrated, you can feel breath sensations in the tips of, in, the, in your toes. You can feel it in fingertips, you can feel it throughout the whole body. Because breath movement is, we're uh, oxygenating and deoxygenating uh, the bloodstream with each breath, each inhalation, each exhalation, as you get very, very quiet. You can feel the aliveness of breath movement throughout the body. Uh, we may do a guided meditation on it, not tonight. We do do it here, just I don't know if I want to use this time for it. Um, why, why focus on the, the long breath and the short breath? As some of you may know, as your ability to stay with the breathing develops, or as you're more continuous in your mindfulness of breathing, there seems to be a lawfulness to it all. And what tends to happen is the breath on its own becomes deeper. The breath on its own becomes more fine. The breath on its own becomes more enjoyable. That is, as your capacity to be with the breathing in an uninterrupted way, we're not trying to alter the breath in any way whatsoever, but just the continuity of attention uh, contributes to the breath smoothing out, becoming very deep and very fine. And of course, the mind beginning to get quieter and quieter. That's part of why it happens. You get concentrated on the breathing, uh, you do less and less thinking, compulsive thinking. And then the breath starts to uh, reassert itself in a natural way. And then all it takes is some emotional uh, problem, maybe a negative thought, and you can feel the long deep breath just collapse sometimes in one breath, and it becomes very short and choppy and unpleasant to breathe and so forth. So, um, we're, not, we're not lusting after getting a long breath because you'll just suffer, just if you grasp after anything, that will happen. But quite naturally, as you begin to uh, be with the breathing, that's what happens. And 
the first, these first two lessons, in a way, these are learning about uh, the, the laws of nature. Dharma, one meaning of Dharma is nature, the way things are. And so, one very interesting thing to learn is that as we pay attention to the breath, the breath starts to change. We're not controlling it. It changes, and it changes in a very wonderful way. Uh, as it becomes more deep, uh, it starts to affect both the body and the mind. And you find the body settling down, becoming much more comfortable. Your ability to sit for longer periods in a stable and comfortable way increases. And of course, you can feel the mind settle down as well. Actually, all three are totally interrelated. So that as the breath settles down, it brings the mind and the body along with it. But if you were able to calm the mind, it would bring the breath and the body along with it. And if you have some nice thing to do with your body, some yoga, tai chi, or you don't overeat, or whatever you do that's good to your body, the body will bring the breath and the mind. It will affect them. So they're all interrelated, but we're entering through the breath door. There's a good reason for it, because it's the most accessible. The mind's very hard to work with directly. There comes a point where the most exciting part of the practice, to me anyway, is to look directly at the mind. But to begin with, uh, as we learn how to stay with the breathing, it's an indirect way of putting the body and the mind in a good place so that we can practice. Because as the breath settles down, uh, your whole being set settles down. And if you recall last week, I talked about acquiring a seat, or it's for the body to become um, firm, like a mountain, to be able to sit there. And that, that having that foundation enables us to be stable in the face of the emotional threats or challenges that face us as fears come up, as loneliness comes up, as anger comes up, and so forth. As If there's a stable physical support, it's very, very helpful. But acquiring a seat is more than the body. That's just a very basic beginning. And as the breath becomes calm, and as the finally, as you'll see, we're, we're, these first four have to do with the mind, the breath and the body becoming one. If you can just picture when you're sitting that there's no separation. You're just sitting and breathing and knowing. It's all one. There's no separation. The boundaries that may exist at the beginning start to dissolve and fall away. They never were really there in an absolute sense anyway. That's an illusion or a delusion. Uh, they're empty. The breath doesn't have inherent intrinsic existence. Neither does the body nor the mind. They're empty of intrinsic existence. And we begin to uh, let go of all kinds of delusions. By the way, to me, a meditation center is a place to burn up delusions. That's what it's about. Meditation hall like this, is we all walk in at some mass purification where we just burn up all of our delusions that we have, all these notions that are just not true, about, or very limited truth, or not helpful. Okay, so as we get to the, the first lesson is learning about the ways of the, the deep breath and the shallow breath. Again, it's not to have contempt for the shallow breath. It's just to know it when it's shallow. So we know, we're beginning to know the qualities of breathing. Now, in these first two contemplations, long and short are really shorthand for all of the qualities that breathing has, but long and short are the easiest ones for most of us to gain access to as we begin. And as we start knowing whether, we're breathing, whether our breathing is deep or shallow, and if you have the time, it's good to begin with step one and just get to know that. I suggested it last week for some of you. And as you do that, you begin to learn other things. You begin to learn about the whole world of the breathing 
It's quite a universe. It's very, very subtle and refined. What you can learn about the breath, much of which you won't be able to put into words, and there's no need to, is extremely interesting and helpful. Uh, and it keeps getting more interesting the more you work with it. You start to see how the breath can be coarse or fine, how it can be such a joy to breathe, or how it can be torture, how the breath fights its way in and fights its way out, actually even feels painful as it comes into the nostrils or out of the nostrils. And you begin to see all the nuances and flavors and subtleties of breathing, about how the long breath can be comfortable and the in-breath, the, I'm sorry, the out-breath can be comfortable and the in-breath not, and then it'll switch around. You begin to get to know the breath, and that trains your attention, and it's an advantage for the breathing to not always be deep, because it gives us an opportunity to work with objects that we don't like, when we're not so comfortable. Now, if we're only doing that, it becomes hard. So that when the breath is shallow, the challenge is can you maintain your attention even though the breath is just that way? When it becomes deep and full, of course, it's much easier to do it. Uh, so some of the lessons that we're learning, we're learning how to distinguish, how to, how to train mindfulness to be much more precise and accurate, to look very, very careful in a detailed way. And we're using the breath as just an opportunity to, to re-educate our, our mind, our capacity to pay attention. Another thing that we're learning, which I just mentioned, is we begin to see how the breath affects the body. In this first four, that's a very important thing to learn. Uh, I'd like to make a suggestion that unless you have a medical condition, Please don't lie down. Sorry to be a, a pain, but uh, work with it, whatever it is. If you have a medical condition, of course, lie down. I don't know. You can tell me anything. Okay, I'll believe you. I've gotten so happy with the breath that i am just become a very gullible person. Okay. So we begin to see, for example, um, Let's say there's great anger. And if we're able to be with the breath while the anger is raging, we begin to see that as the breath becomes deeper and more full, the anger starts to fall away. Now, this is not insight. It's not uprooting the anger, which comes a little bit later. But it's awfully helpful sometimes. It's not repression either, because we know the anger's there. And if we're not able to work with it in a skillful way, it's better to not be tyrannized by it, tormented by it. Okay, um, okay. Time is always an issue. I think I went a bit too long last week. I'll try to. Um, as you become more comfortable with the in-breath and the out-breath, as you become to, quite naturally you're going to see that some breaths are deep and some breaths are shallow. And most of you know the instructions. That is, at this point, for contemplation one and two, the breath is an exclusive object. Although we're beginning to learn about the way the body reacts, you can't help but learn that, or how the mind reacts. Primarily, what we're interested in is the breathing and its quality, what's happening to the breath. Okay. As we do that, um, we're going a number of ways here tonight. 
okay. The mind begins to become much more calm and concentrated. It does by every time our mind wanders, we come back to the breathing. We come back in a non-judgmental way without blaming ourselves so that if your mind wanders a thousand times in five minutes, you come back a thousand times. The coming back is part of the practice. It's not uh, an obstacle or a waste of time. If you didn't need to come back, you wouldn't need to be here. You just have this laser-like mind and you just say, just look into your mind and body and notice that everything is impermanent, lacks self, let it go and become enlightened. <laughs> you know, and I'll see you in 10 years and tell me how I'm doing. Help me out. But it isn't quite like that. Okay, so um, if we can learn to come back gracefully without blaming, time and time again, naturally what happens is we learn how to stick with the breathing. And as we learn how to stick with the breathing, we become more peaceful. These are things that we all experience. We become more peaceful. There's a bit of serenity enters the mind, and as that gets deeper, the, the kind of peace and serenity can be very dramatic, more than perhaps we've ever experienced, dramatically more so. The mind starts becoming more stable, and a certain amount of happiness is introduced into the human person, just through the simple breathing in and breathing out with more continuity. There's a nourishing of ourselves through just this. It's very, very important to receive that nourishment. Because as we become happier, this is not wisdom yet, but as we become happier, we're more able to look at the ways in which we are living that are not wise. We're able to deal with very strong emotions, fear, loneliness, and so forth. If we're totally miserable, and there's no, and we sit down to meditate, and we just feel surrounded, uh, it's really rather unrealistic, unless someone is supremely motivated, like this person who had emphysema, uh, it's not going to amount to very much. It'll be fanciful. So what we emphasize relatively to begin with is to help the mind calm down, settle down, to actually enjoy practicing, to be able to sit and breathe and to experience a certain degree of happiness. And as I've just mentioned, the body starts to come along with that. And we develop what is called samadhi. Okay, now, here are some practical ways in which samadhi helps us. Let's say that a strong, a strong fear comes up, or a strong anger comes up. Uh, the straight vipassana approach, you'd, you would look anger right in the eye, face to face, gently but decisively, and you would enter into it and see its nature. And that, we will be, of course, talking a lot about that work a little bit later on. Okay. In order to do that, the mind has to be real, ideally, has to be fairly stable, so that it, it is unwavering in the face of these very strong uh, objects, physical pain and mental pain. Okay. So, let's say we're not there yet. We still have a very useful thing we can do. As we learn how to be with the breathing, in, out, in, out, when certain negative, very powerful negative things come along, uh, instead of nourishing that, planting more seeds of fear, more seeds of anger, more seeds of discouragement, what we can do is, as we improve our ability to be with the breathing, we plant seeds of mindfulness. <coughs> mindfulness, all these seeds in a sense go into our storehouse consciousness in Buddhist psychology. It's like a warehouse. Probably to some degree similar to the unconscious. And we have seeds that are painful and destructive, and we have seeds that are wonderful and loving and so forth. Each, each of us has both, and many that are just neutral. So we now have a new option, whereas before, 
whenever we were lonely or angry, we would get, probably get compelled into action, maybe do things that were not so wise, hurt ourselves and other people. Now we have an option, which is we can switch from channel anger, from channel fear to channel breath. It can get to be that way. Again, knowing that you're doing it, it's not denial or repression. It's understanding full well that there's great anger in me, but understanding also that you're not ready to be, you're not able to fully be with it. The mind isn't fit to do the work of wisdom. So that you switch over to the breathing. And what tends to happen is, by being with the breathing, you become absorbed into the breathing. And, of course, you're not strengthening that tendency to be angry, that tendency to, to be uh, frightened and so forth. So that withers just a little bit. It's not undercutting it or eliminating it. Naturally, I don't think I want to go beyond one and two, which is the different qualities of the breathing. Uh, next time we'll get into the whole body and the breath, which is very important. But just to give you a little bit of a, of a preview, what tends to happen is uh, the mind, breath, and body become one, and there's a stability. And you are fit to look into and examine and learn from whatever the mind throws up. And of course, then uh, it's genuine vipassana begins, when, uh, when we begin to really get to know ourselves. Now, it's really beginning every... You can't help but learn about yourself, no matter what you do, if you pay attention. In that sense, just to sit for an hour, even if you hate it, quietly, I don't think it would be... A, you have to learn something about yourself. Even that you hate to sit still. That's something. It's self-knowledge. Okay, so one of the things that's happening is we're developing this um, calmness, this stability, and it's a little bit like having uh, the samadhi practice, which is basically what we're doing this for. It's like uh, having a home. Think of... Uh, street people, how hard that must be. If any of you have, for any period of your time, not had a home, uh, I, for a while, didn't have a home, and I, it was romantic at first. You know, you can imagine, the 60s. And, but at a certain point, the romance was gone, and it's just you don't have a home, which means that you're vulnerable to the elements, you're vulnerable to people, you're vulnerable to everything. Okay, this is a little bit like that. It's developing a, a place of stability. Uh, the deeper the samadhi, the, the, let's say the, in Thailand they use an image of you have a hut made out of either uh, straw or wood or cement, in other words a stronger house uh, which, from which to receive protection. However, that house is not the end of the practice. It's in a sense a place to nourish ourselves, to come to rest in, so that we can then walk outside the house and investigate everything that's going on outside. And finally, of course, even the house itself, because the house itself can become a, a cause of suffering. If we get attached to just quiet, we just love the stillness of the breath, and we just don't want to look at any of our stuff, investigate, all that. I'm happy just the way I am, just breathing. Well, that would be a, re a very limited use of the practice. Moreover, it's probably doomed, and you, it, it won't work, because these homes that we build, they're not permanent, no matter how hard we work on them. If the conditions aren't right, they fall away too. Okay. Um, 
I think what I'd like to do now is to begin to talk about daily life. Uh, that, uh, in a commentary on this particular teaching, a sermon of the Buddha, comes in under the first two, uh, on the in-breath and out-breath. That is, in this practice, the breath is not used just in formal sitting. It's not used just when we do this. It's meant to be uh, worked into our life. For example, if you think for a moment, when you're walking, are you breathing? Say, when you're eating, are you breathing? When you're at work, the most stressful, think of it for the moment, the most stressful time of your work, are you breathing or, no, I'm too busy, I don't have any time to breathe. Even when we sleep, we breathe. And the, this particular sutra, in a sense, takes advantage of that very obvious fact that we have this free, portable method that's just naturally happening all day long and all night long, that wherever we are, the breath is. It's always available. And no matter what you say, you, you know, I'm too busy or that's the wrong posture, you have to be breathing. Now, you may do something to that breath out of stress and so forth, but you are breathing. And so what the Buddha did was to capitalize on that, to use the fact that we're always breathing and that it's so natural and accessible, to use that as a, as a means of nourishing general mindfulness to whatever we're being mindful of. So one part of our practice, the samadhi part, we're interested in the breath exclusively. But as most of you know, the practice gets very interesting when we begin to examine the nature of our mind and body and the breath is very useful there, both in the sitting and also outside. Today, I'd like to, this evening, I'd like to mention a little bit about your daily life, because we didn't, I don't think we've talked much about that. Uh, it has to do with being fully where you are, doing what you're doing uh, wholeheartedly. Perhaps something from our own, these days, battered Western culture. One of the nicest statements from Thoreau. This is from Thoreau in his major, uh, major essays about walking. Basically, he's talking about walking meditation. And this is what he says when he goes into the woods, which he did a lot of, as you know. Quote, of course, it is no use to direct our steps to the woods if they do not carry us thither. I am alarmed when it happens that I have walked a mile into the woods bodily without getting there in spirit. In my afternoon walk, I would fain forget all my morning occupations and obligations to society, but it still happens sometimes that I, can't, that I cannot easily shake the village. The thought of some work will run in my head, and I am not where my body is. I am out of my senses. What business have I in the woods if I am thinking of something out of the woods? Okay. That's the core of Buddhist mindfulness practice in daily life. It's to be, if you're in the woods, then be in the woods, for goodness sakes. So what he's saying is, you heard, it's pretty clear enough. Okay. And we also know that very often we are not where we are. Our body is here and our mind is in Toledo, Ohio, or further away. 
And the conscious breathing is something that can be used with practice to help you stay rooted in the present moment. Typically, we get caught in the past. Something comes up from the past and just pulls us way back. It doesn't matter where our body is. We could be doing whatever it is we're doing, but finally, a, a part of us is caught up in the past. Or we're sucked into the future, a future that isn't even here. Or we're even drowning in the present, some mood that we're in. But what we aren't is fully awake in the present moment. Now, because we're always breathing, because the breath is always there, and as we use it and develop it, it presents itself as a tremendous asset, a tremendous way of helping us stay awake in the midst of whatever it is that we're doing. So that's its beauty. Uh, now, I don't think you'll experience that unless you really give it a try. What I've discovered over the years of practice and teaching is that most people, perhaps everyone, really likes that aspect of the Buddha's teaching that, oh, meditation isn't just this. I mean, it includes everything you do. Yes, the art of mindful living, meditation is a way of life. Everyone likes that, gets excited about it. But then we walk out of the door and then it's gone. We don't do it. So we still tend to favor the formal practices, the sitting and the walking, coming to special places to do it, IMS, CIMC. Go to Thailand to meditate. Okay, so that uh, it's very clear that uh, for this practice to be done correctly, just the way it was designed, is that we little by little have to begin to develop a keen interest in seeing how we live our life. And that means bringing attention to whatever we do. We forget, just as we do with the breath when we're sitting. And as soon as you notice that, just coming back. Well, it turns out that one way to help us do that is by being in touch with the breathing. It's as if the breath at first feels like it's in the background. And it's kind of walking and holding your hand. It's accompanying you. It's like a companion. And a good companion, a good friend. And so you may be, let's say, um, typically you walk, let's say, in the morning when I walk out of here, I'm just walking into the square. I'm in touch with my breathing. I'm just doing a, a normal walk, natural pace. Nothing special about it, really. I experience some aspects of the body and movement, and I stay in touch with the breathing. Now, if you do enough of that, in other words, if you remember to, to keep the breath in mind, even though we know we forget to do this a lot, it's okay. Little by little, let that grow. What tends to happen is, if you turn to the breath a lot, if you do keep the breath in mind, it becomes more alive, it becomes more viable, it becomes much more of a, uh, it's just there. At a certain point you can't not be attentive to the breathing. So that whatever you're doing, it's like you're living out of your breathing. That isn't going to be handed to us, it isn't handed to us. It comes out of paying attention to breathing time and time again, and using that as an adjunct in a sense, to help us stay alert in whatever it is we're doing. Take perhaps some simple things to get yourself started. The next time you're going to wash the dishes, pause and tune into your breathing first. And then focus in on washing the dishes. It's not a matter of having such thorough and detailed knowledge of the breath. That would be impossible. The, the, what, the work, what the situation is, is, the di is dishes. So focus totally into the dishes, but also know that you're breathing in and breathing out. You'll see that it's not that difficult because it's always there. And it has a way of cutting down unnecessary thinking, dispersion, and getting lost. It has a way of helping us 
stay with the dishes. Now, strictly speaking, you don't need to do that. Just be mindful of the dishes. Be mindful of walking. Be mindful of whatever you do. Uh, that's finally what the practice is about. But uh, bringing conscious breathing in along with it helps us to do that, helps us to, to, to make it a reality. And that's, of course, why the Buddha spent so much time with this. So please begin to experiment, see if it's helpful for you. Bring it in in small ways, from time to time. Unite your breathing, your conscious breathing. You're always breathing, but the awareness of it with the activity that you're doing. Uh, turn to it uh, when you're standing waiting for an elevator, or you're on the tee and nothing much is required of you. That's a little different, then you can give much more full attention to it. Use it when you're driving. For example, you come to a red light. And very often people have, in an unexamined way, we view the red light as a kind of enemy. You know, it's like uh, we have this need to just zip to where we're going. Usually we're not even happy to where we're going, but anyway, <laughs> once we get there, then it starts again. Uh, for example, on retreats, uh, it's, quite, it's humorous when you give interviews. After a while, you realize it's quite a common pattern. Before the person goes, let's say if you're going away to a longer retreat, let's say to Barry, the residential retreat, so the first, the, the week or two before you go to the retreat, uh, you're neglecting your family and all the people in your life because you're constantly thinking about, oh, I can't wait to get to Barry and it'll be quiet and there's good food and be out in the country and God, just to be able to practice for 10 days and meantime your family is going down the drain because you're not, uh, your work is being neglected. And then no sooner we get to the Barry, to, to the retreat, then there's this, we start worrying about how's little Jimmy doing at home, and how's mom, and how's suddenly now we're back home. When we were home, we weren't home. When we we're on the retreat, we're not on the retreat. It's common. That have any of you experienced it, or is it just me? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the conscious breathing is an attempt to help us be more fully alive, to become real, because in those times, if we're always somewhere else, what can we say about the quality of our life, of what's happening? Okay, so now we, we're driving, and, you know, and many people like to drive fast. There's some kind of good feeling that we get from it, and suddenly red turns up. And there's an impatience and an irritability and all kinds of things going on. Uh, if you see it as like this mindfulness bell, or it's now, instead of being an enemy, it's a great bodhisattva you know, that has come to help you. It's saying, just stop, just pay attention to your breathing. Oh, wow, suddenly you love red lights. They're just terrific. The more the better, because you can actually get some practice in. Also, then, if your car is going fast, it doesn't mean that your mind is going fast. You can learn to develop a calmness that's independent of how rapid the vehicle is going. Because that it doesn't follow because the car is going fast that you have to be a nervous wreck. Oh, you don't understand. I've got to get to this. There was a person here a few years ago who would come in five minutes late, huffing and puffing, to a class that we had. And finally, you know, I couldn't resist that, you know, what, what's going on? He said, well, uh, I just have to, to get here on time, I just have to go through all these traffic jams and go around here, and he described it, I couldn't do it justice. And it sounded exhausting, and he was very, very tense. So he was 
making himself into a nervous wreck to get to a place where he could be calm. You know, it just seemed like, don't even bother coming. I mean, just stay wherever you are and calm down because uh, it just seemed a little bit strange. Okay, but over a period of time, you can learn how to settle down within and it has not, so that you can be calm while moving quickly, not only in a car, but with body. Some of us, because we do a lot of slow stuff in Vipassana, develop the erroneous assumption that slow is holy in some way, very spiritual. If somebody's walking very slow, they must be very deep. <laughs> I wouldn't say so, not necessarily, maybe. Slow is slow, and it can be used to learn certain things. And fast is fast. That's all it is. It doesn't mean it's worldly or arrogant or authoritarian, or it may be, but sometimes you do have to do things rapidly in life. The key thing is, how is the mind inside of the body that's moving at one speed or another? How is that doing? And that's, that's crucial. And that's what the practice is about. Okay, so we can transform certain situations into situations that help us. And when we come to a red light, if you can turn to the breathing, calm down a bit, it can be quite helpful. Similar way with, te with a telephone. If the phone rings, pause. Allow a few rings uh, to happen, two or three rings to happen. And then when you approach the phone, when you answer it, you're likely to be more real, more awake. Really be listening. In fact, while you're listening, see if you can stay in touch with your breathing. It's like the breath again is in the background and help, can help you listen to the person you're speaking to. I've taken that on as for my own practice a lot. And uh, <clears throat> there was a period uh, where it was difficult. It's not so hard anymore. Whether it's someone calling up from the Boston Globe who wants to sell you something, a subscription, or your, you know, your closest friend, can you be attentive, independent of that? Can, and the breath can really help you do that. Eating, staying in touch with your breathing can help you if you're eating too rapidly or get out of control, overeat, because uh, before you, you know, the smoke clears and suddenly you've devoured something that you didn't want to do. You know, you may oh, had all these good intentions. Uh, the breath can kind of help you out. Let me give you an example from my own, uh, my own life and practice. My life and my practice, are they the same or different? I don't know. Okay, sometimes. Um, my father is a, uh, the last of the old Jewish storytellers. In other words, he has a, a knack of telling stories in Yiddish. He's still at it at 85 in West Palm Beach, Florida, uh, to people from his generation who are listening to these same old Jewish stories that I grew up to, only they're laughing at him. And I, you know, uh, uh, I have heard them a few times at least, as you've heard my stories a few times at least. And he's very funny. And some of that I just got by osmosis. I'm, I'm, try, I'm not saying I'm some big comedian or something of that sort, but uh, I love my father. I, got ve I was very close to him, still I'm very close to him, and I got a lot of that. And when I taught, I taught at, uh, was a college professor for about 10 years. I used humor a lot to teach. And then as I started to teach uh, Dharma, I also was using humor a lot. And when I started to do this practice, it became excruciatingly painful uh, because I started to see that the humor was incredibly compulsive and it was being used as a power play, it was being used to cover over awkwardness or shyness or to shut someone up who uh, you don't want to hear what they have to say. Uh, sometimes it might even be funny, but 
even when it was funny, sometimes the motive was not really learning or trying to help facilitate what was going on. It was very humiliating. And the breath came in really handy in the following way. I would be talking, and uh, this was he- here, you know, at an IMS, not, not long after the university. And suddenly that compulsion would come up. You know, a very funny thing would come up, what we call a shtick. It would just, I didn't ask for it, it would just come up to the mind. And it's so compelling, it's almost impossible to resist saying it. And unless you hold on to dear life, to your breathing, you do say it. And then you're, so that's sort of like, and you hear it, you know, the one about the family when I move the, the pigs and the chickens. No, don't say it. Just, just be quiet. Breathe in, breathe out. You're just holding on. In, out, in, out. It passed. I don't have to try to be funny. Okay. Little by little, what happens is you can use conscious breathing to, to develop restraint. And restraint is very, very, it's not a, a very glamorous word. Probably when we hear it, we don't really like a restraint. We want to be free and just do what we want to do whenever we want to do it, wherever we want to do it. But restraint is a very important part of the practice until it isn't anymore, until you don't need restraint, until your instincts are so wholesome, so uh, sane, so compassionate, so loving, that you really are, you're working that way. You're living that way. Uh, Take the precepts. Let me get to what I mean by restraint first, because I don't want it to be misunderstood. At least when I was growing up, restraint had a connotation of, uh, it was in the same family as repression, suppression, and slavery, delimitation, and so forth. It was not good. Somehow it was like this. Teachers did it to you, and straitjackets did it to you, and so forth. But restraint here is is meant in a, a very wholesome and loving way. It's actually doing something that's beneficial for you. You restrain from doing something because you can see with your whatever degree of wisdom you have, whatever degree of clarity you have, that it's destructive. And yet you know how powerful these thoughts and actions, they just, we're helpless. It seems as if we're helpless. We aren't, of course. The development of the practice is an intervention to, uh, so that things become workable, so that we aren't enslaved to our own mind. That's the problem, us, not, not anyone else. The main problem is us. Okay, so let's say with a precept, Let's say, uh, not to lie, not to um, utter, give forth utterances that divide people one from another, not to speak harshly and with cruelty, and trivial speech. Okay, let's say if you've taken the five precepts, that would be one that you've, and that's part of our practice for many people. Not everyone takes it, and you know, it's up to you. It's something you voluntarily take on as a practice. Okay, uh, restraint is hearing something come up in the mind that is making a very good case for itself and it's almost out on the lips and that you've almost engineered the friction that's necessary to create a sound and then you say it and then it's in the world and it's hard to pull it back. You can't pull it back. You can apologize, but it's out there, as we say. Okay. Now, <clears throat> I found that with, as, the, as Anapanasati became a very strong practice for me, that is, the more you work with the breath, the more it's going to be able to help you. If you don't use it, it's never going to become strong enough to be of much use. That what I can do is similar to with you know with the compulsive humor was just uh, you could if you can 
there's a space. You, like you have two seconds to either blow it or to restrain yourself and not do something stupid. Not do something stupid, not say something stupid. That will hurt you and hurt other people. It's a little bit like uh, you're walking with a child and you're on Mass Avenue and you know cars and trucks are just zipping by. Uh, restraint would be out of love. You would hold your child and not allow them to run onto Mass Avenue, even though they want to. Let's say, this, and they might say, "You're mean. I hate you." You know, you still don't let them run onto Mass Avenue. You hold them not with a cruel way, not in a violent way, but because you care about them and you know that that would be a foolish thing to do, that they could uh, get killed. So restraint is an important part of our practice, particularly with the precepts until uh, we start living with more integrity naturally. Now, the precepts in our time period, one of the most important things imaginable, because the level of integrity is so low. Uh, you know, you could see movies now that uh, everything's okay, as long as you don't get caught. And even that's okay, because you can sell a book, or write a book about it, and make a fortune on just being, uh, doing whatever it is you do. So, the precepts, in a sense, we're flying smack in the middle of our times, we're going against the tide, and yet it's what the planet needs desperately. Okay, so in that sense, conscious breathing can, in its own small way, can help you. Of course, it's not a substitute for seeing and understanding, but it, it's a, a mighty helpful friend when you need it, and I have found it so, for me, personally. I think I'll stop, uh, we'll continue on the daily life and breath the next time, but I'd like to know if there's anything on your mind, any questions or comments? Reflections, observations, please. One thing I've noticed is that when I sit a lot, I do slow down. Mm-hmm. And um, I read something once, and I, I found it, I think that it's true, that people tend, to, at least in the West, tend to associate intelligence with speed, how fast you talk to And I do find that there, I feel a pressure of people around me, to, especially in this area, to speed up again, because it feels too slow, constantly in this kind of tension between feeling as though I want to be slower, mm-hmm. wanting, I guess, the um, respect of being fast, right. and the things that go along with that. So although I guess it's not yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, I certainly understand what you're saying, because uh, my nature is more fast. And in coming into this Buddhist stuff, at first it was very difficult for me to walk so slowly. I love it now, but it's not special. I know uh, sometimes you feel like walking slowly, just the way all the conditions that come in, fine. I think what might be helpful is for you to, if you could do it, be able to discern the difference between what is the appropriate way of walking for you and what is you worrying about what other people think about you. They're two very different things. Now, you may, for all kinds of reasons, decide that you're going to fit in. That's all right. It's your choice. But do it consciously then. You know, that you know that, uh, look, it's better to, I, I would be happier walking slow, but I can't, but uh, it's going to create, everyone in my office will start making fun and they won't trust me and they'll think I'm weird. So I think it's better just, uh, your wisdom tells you that it's better to do that. Fine. But then you at least know what you're doing. Uh, but if you're doing it out of a semi-examined fear, that doesn't bode well, you know, at some point, because you're harming yourself in the process of doing that. So you can, with attention, uh, for example, 
you can really know what's appropriate. And sometimes fast is appropriate. For example, if this building will start to burn down, uh, some of you super-duper yogis from IMS, I hope that you can run fast because we've got to get out of here. Because it's appropriate. Correct action would be fa fast would be appropriate. But if you're in the midst of a retreat and you're you know, setting the world's record for slowness here, that's fine because in that context, that's, it, it, there's some value in walking slowly, the kinds of things you can accomplish. So none of them are absolute ends. And finally, it will lead you back to yourself. Your relationship to what other people think of you and uh, feelings of, of uh, insecurity and so forth. Uh, maybe rebe my rebellious nature might say, well, the heck with them. If they, they want to walk fast, I'm going to be slow. But that's the same game. So how to really finally slip out from under any of the games and what, what is the right choice, I don't know, but you could tell by paying attention. Yeah. In, in the Thai forest tradition, which in my experience is the most balanced approach to this of any of the places that I've been, um, they uh, actually encourage you to walk naturally during the walking meditation. And if we had more space, we'd be doing much more of that here. We don't have the space. And if, so you have a, tra a path and you walk back and forth at a natural pace. What's natural for you? And sometimes, of course, you get very, very slow. The mind gets very concentrated. You become like a turtle. Fine. At other times, you're sleepy and restless. And so sometimes rapid walking is good. So they don't really make anything a virtue, particularly, uh, in terms of speed. Uh, don't get caught there. That's not what it's about. You know, it's really, what, what's the quality of mind in back of it? What are all those people running? What is that all about? You know, what is that accomplishing, really? All that running and, I don't know. I don't want to start preaching. Yeah. Can you say something about the practice of noticing by naming what's happening and how it relates to the I don't do that practice. Probably other people, you mean mental notes? Yeah. Uh, there are other people who are more qualified. I, I, I would be speaking just from a book. I don't know it from my own practice. I've done a little of it, but not much. How to coordinate it with the breathing? No, it's the same. There, the, the conscious breath is one way to help you be in the moment. The mental notes is another way to help you be in the moment. A mantra is another way. A koan is another way. No. I, I, and if you're drawn to mental notes and not to the breath, then, then do that. The, the conscious breathing is not for everyone. There's no technique for everyone. Yeah, I think it accomplishes... I've done it enough to know that, yes. Yeah. If you're more drawn to that, do that. Yeah. In the beginning, you also said that Buddha um, offers images... No, I said uh, Thich Nhat Hanh uh, introduced some Zen, Zen from Zen poetry. Oh, do you mind mentioning one or two of them? I did. Isn't it? Uh, feeling like oh, a flower. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, right. yeah, right. yeah. No, I, to my uh, no. The, the if you read the sutra, it's very bare. Mm -hmm. It's just there's nothing. You know, there's nothing there. That's what I love about Theravadan Buddhism. Is it's a low-budget film. <laughs> yeah, let's face it. It can be very, dr and it can be very dry, too dry sometimes. But it's very direct and clear about what to do. Just follow your breath. And um, the image images are used a lot in the Tibetan Buddhism, as you know. And, and this, yeah. Please. Um, you talked about home. Home. Mind, body, breath together. But then, I don't know if you want to say a little bit more, but home is empty. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, but you're getting, I guess I have to say something, because I did say it. <clears throat> but it would be well beyond what we're dealing with now. Emptiness in, in Buddhism doesn't mean necessarily like space. That's one you... Empty means empty of in, intrinsic uh, existence. So that uh, things come together temporarily because of certain causes and conditions. Now we impute a solidity or a core to them, whether it's the breath or a house, or like this center is empty. But it's not empty because there's space here. It's empty because it's, at some point it's not going to be Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. It doesn't have intrinsic reality. It was a, 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 I know the history of the place, so it's easy for me to, to know this place is empty. It was a, a doctor built it, and it became a birthing center. Uh, it was the first and only birthing center in Cambridge. Then the, uh, doc, uh, the doctor's wife died. He married his nurse. Think, things of, you know. Then uh, he died. Then, then one of his sons became alcoholic, and the, you know, and this place became a rundown rooming house with water pouring in from the roof. That's when we got it. Okay, a highly neglected, good old house, and now it's uh, Buddhist Center, Buddhist Order, Cambridge Inside Meditation Center, or you know that other name, you know that all of that. So it's not that it's not here. It's here, but it's here in a particular way. It's empty of, but the mind imputes solidity to it. And we do that with ourselves. The self, anatta, means that there is no core self that we can point to. That's exactly who I am. It's not that it's not there at all, but it's not, it's not there in quite the way we think it is. And that's delusion. And as you look carefully, you see that, and it's not even a negative thing. People think, oh gosh, everything is empty. Uh, it's, it means that we're alive. You know, things are fresh and alive, and if things weren't empty, we would all be, you know, the, whatever neurosis or psychosis you brought to this practice, they would all have a hard core. They wouldn't be, you know, we'd be just for the rest of our life. You'd have your, I'd be telling jokes for the rest of my life. <laughs> no matter what, World War III's declared, did you ever hear the one about the, hey, will you stop it? <laughs> you know, and whatever yours, it would not be empty. It would have real, it would have self, it would have atta. But it isn't, it's empty, and so, you know, conditions keep coming and going and changing. And what we're learning is how to live with that. So it's good news, finally, or it's, you know, it's the way things are, good news or bad news. I didn't write the script, I mean, you know, this, I just find it this way, the way you do. It's a very, per now, in this sutra, when we get to contemplation 13, which is about impermanence, using the breath to see impermanence, then this becomes a central point, and you can then go back uh, to every step that you've covered along the way. Take uh, long breath and short breath. Okay, that's first two contemplations. You know, that's a way of introducing us to the practice. At a certain point, when the mind is ready for it, anything can be the basis for wisdom. So you can go back to what we began with, which let's say, uh, when you breathe in, you know it's long, if it's long, and so forth. But you can, and you can make that a, a meditation theme, and you look at it, you can see that long doesn't last. You know, long is long, 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 and then it becomes short, 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 short. And then it becomes long, 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 long. And if the breath is fine, it remains fine, 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 coarse, 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 coarse. I love breathing, I love breathing, I hate breathing, I hate breathing. So you can develop wisdom on, the, on just any of these steps. But right now what we're emphasizing, emphasizing is stopping the mind from wandering so much, settling down, and being able to uh, see clearly. And then the subsequent steps more and more are what comes out of the deep seeing, insight, seeing into.
Anything else? Please. I have some uh, ironic uh, metaphor, so kind of to your question here. Um, since we all love uh, freedom of sex, drug, and rock and roll. Um, Do we? Well, I thought that went out a while back. Yeah. Uh, since we like this kind of freedom, why do we need this enlightenment which blocks everything else? I don't know. You know, you know better than I do. Well, maybe most of the people don't know. Yeah. I need an explanation. Help me understand your question. Why do we need enlightenment if, se- if sex, drug, and rock and roll is so wonderful? Is that your question? Since we all love freedom of a free lifestyle. Yeah. And uh, on, the, ah. on the other hand, the enlightenment itself has nothing to do with all these things, which is too, you know... That's not okay. I'm sorry, I don't quite see it the way you do. Okay. Enlightenment affects every aspect of our life. It's a way of, uh, but is it free? Or is the, what you're calling free, what we call free, is that real freedom? See the the uh, the teachings of the Buddha. Uh, I would say have a very different notion as to what freedom is than uh, what what you're calling freedom. I think others might call license. You know, just. Just do whatever you, you want. And as you look more carefully, have you done that kind of... I've lived that way. And at a certain point, it's very, very conditioned, desperate, compulsive. And there's some good times in it, too. No question about it. But I wouldn't call it freedom. And looking back, I, I feel humiliated at how cocky and arrogant I was, thinking I'd come upon... We th- you know, those of us who used LSD, we thought we found the solution to the world's problems. We didn't realize we were just contributing to them more. Although some of that was helpful. Um, you're, one way of looking at enlightenment is that it's up here and that everything else is down here. So that you're saying it has nothing to do with what's going on here. But I would find that it, <clears throat> my understanding is not that. Unless you reasonably well come to terms with what's going on here, you're never going to get to what you're calling up here. It's not possible because you'll keep tripping over yourself. Now, uh, my own understanding of the deepest freedoms is that uh, they're not locked away in some kind of um, hermetically sealed container, that there's freedom over here and then there's this dirty, noisy world down here. That uh, in, in a deeper practice, let's say after you've begun to taste some very wonderful things, which you could call a taste of enlightenment, the challenge becomes to bring that which you have experienced into, the, into daily life. Uh, because if, you ju- if it's only restricted to, let's say, IMS and CIMC, you, you're really like a hothouse plant. Let me give you <clears throat> an example. Do, do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah. So that um, finally, okay, this, I hope this doesn't confuse you more than, there's a very, to me, a very high teaching is, don't favor either uh, nirvana or samsara. In other words, uh, either one, they're, they're both okay. They're both fine. If you're in nirvana, wonderful. If you're in samsara, the world of illusion, wonderful. Now, it's, it's a point that's not so easy to, to convey in the time that we have and so forth. But anything that you lock into, including your notion of what you think enlightenment is, is not enlightenment anymore. Don't you still have to live in the world? You do. Now, there's a depth that goes beyond what we think of as being a person. Uh, so that the, the real freedom turns out to be, it has to be inside. So that you could even, uh, you could look free from the outside and be enslaved. 
or as, as so many people are. They're just doing whatever they, they please. That, aren't we paying for that now in the United States? In other words, let's say the credit card thing, and every, you know, that's just symbolic of much more. We've been living as if there's no tomorrow for quite a few years, as if there are no limits in terms of material resources, in terms of anything. It's, been an, it's an illusion. And so now the karma is coming back. Whatever it is, I don't know what it will, what it will lead to. But uh, we've taken that to mean freedom. That is, for our standard of living to go up, up, and up, and up, insatiable consumption. That's, that's what makes us feel good. From a spiritual point of view, that isn't all that impressive. Because at a certain point, probably all of us are here, many of us at least, have had privileged lives. We've had schooling and adequate money and adequate food and a good place to live. And it's not that that's not important, but it certainly isn't enough. Well, why would we be here? What's behind your question? I don't feel I'm handling it very well. No, you explained pretty well. I did? Yeah. Since uh, my main question is, since everybody loves the freedom to roam or do whatever we please, I see. why do we have to look for the another uh, extra freedom, which is enlightenment? Uh, enlightenment yeah. itself is blocked everything else. It yeah. has nothing to Where do did you get this understanding from? Why would people, or why would some of the greatest human beings who've lived, starting with the Buddha, want to pursue this, if it's what you're saying? They're complete, we're all a bunch of complete fools. You know, here we have this wonderful sex, drug, and rock and roll, or, or freedom, and instead, what do we do? We sit with our, you know, fold our legs, and our knees hurt, and we go off to retreats for three months. Uh, we're, maybe, it could be, maybe we're just one in 2,500 years of delusion and derangement. It's possible, really it is. Why not? Stranger things have happened. I think there are two different uses of the word freedom. You know, what you're calling freedom, uh, first of all, if that were so fulfilling, what you, what you think is so wonderful, if that was so fulfilling, there would be no interest in these things. But the truth is, here we are. And we're willing, it seems, to put up with all kinds of inconvenience. So maybe uh, it isn't quite as wonderful as you're making it out to be. Does that make any sense? That's true. You have to look further. This is the freedom. So enjoy it. But if there is something else, why don't they teach a better thing? Okay, but look, here are the, the real... Well, oh, well, okay. <laughs> no. No, I'm not God. Um, in the real freedom, uh, you, could, you, know, you could do those things that you like. The real freedom is not necessarily linked if you're a monk or a nun, you have to stop doing certain things. But there are other paths. The, the path that we're working on is not a path that where you have to, let's say, not have a, um, a partner, eat only one meal a day, not carry money, and so forth. That's one legitimate way of getting free. But there are other ways where you actually, and that's what we've been saying all along, you're using your ordinary life just as it is. And if yours inclu includes some of those things, by all means. But now we use it to learn about ourselves, just what is our relationship to sex, drug, and rock and roll. So it's certainly possible that somebody is doing all these things and is completely free inside, but most people are not. And at a certain point, it runs out. Now, okay, I think I'm just repeating myself. Why are you here? I mean, if the TV is on the same level, mass media, as the Buddha and Jesus, why are you here? Do you think they are on the same level? You just what? I'm 
I'm just uh, coming here just as an oldest people. Okay. One last anything, if there is, before we have tea. Please. So you see the potential is there. See, the more you use it, your um, your reflexes become quicker. It can help bring about real balance, so that it's not that you withdraw or you repress, but you say it's more skill, what we call skillful action. And without it, you know, we all we all know what we what is possible. Yeah. Uh, this the question before about freedom. I don't feel I've answered it, uh, and I'd be happy to speak to you personally. Hello, hi. If you want to continue it, I'd be happy to speak to you personally about it. I have a few other ideas that might be helpful, but I don't want to burden other people with it, and I think it's good if we have some tea. Yeah. Can we have a moment's silence? be happy. May all beings be peaceful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.